0: So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I am joined by Matt Gertler and he is general counsel for Reserve Stablecoin. He is an attorney. He's working with a stablecoin, but he actually comes from the payment space working with Venmo and also working in a blockchain research company as well. He gets the technology side. He gets the legal side man, he just gets it. It was a really good conversation. We talk about the remittance industry. Uh, We talk about stable coins, the pegs, how they work, maybe if they don't work. We talk about Facebook's coin, which wants to be a stable coin. We get into regulations, talking about what may or may not hold back the industry and so much more. It's a really good conversation. I really enjoyed it. We're definitely going to have Matt back. So let's go ahead and just jump right into this. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I am with General Counsel of Reserve Stablecoin, Matt Gertler, and uh, we've had some conversations before in the past. He's super knowledgeable. I'm excited to dig in today because there's some new developments in the stablecoin space I want to jump into. So anyway, welcome, Matt. Great to be here, Mark. All right, good. Ready. I'm I'm happy to have you. Happy to jump into these conversations today. So um, I gave you a quick intro, but for those um, that are listening, why don't you just kind of tell us who you are and how you got to the blockchain space and what you're doing right now?
1: Sure. Um, I got involved in the uh, blockchain cryptocurrency space back in 2013, around the time that the Bit license was being proposed. I had been working uh, during my one of my summers during law school at Venmo, helping them apply for money transmitter licenses. And New York basically took their money transmitter statute, made it more onerous and applied it to a technology rather than how technology is used. And so um, I got involved with my background at Venmo and uh, at trying to fight against the bit license at the time. And I thought, you know what, there are a lot of problems in our financial system, predominantly dealing with remittances, cross-border payments, um, clearing and sort of the time. And I realized that cryptocurrencies generally or blockchain generally would be a potential solution to this. And so that sort of got me down the rabbit hole. Um, I realized that a lot of attorneys, because there wasn't much legal guidance at the time, so they would try to rely on their experience, but they didn't truly understand the technology. So that's sort of the bridge that I tried to, um, that, that's why I tried to bridge, was studying the technology at a level where I could sort of bridge between the lawyers that had been practicing for 20 years and yeah. the engineers who had never realized that this law was applicable to them. Right. Um so to speed up um my um, background, I worked in Big Law, a law firm called Millbank. Um, then I went off to co-found an institutional research firm um for cryptocurrencies, basically writing detailed twenty to eighty page research reports on individual cryptocurrencies for institutional investors, focused predominantly on the legal and regulatory risks that might be real in investment. Uh some of the projects we covered were tin, um, Tezos. So um I've looked at some of the more unique regulatory aspects there. I left um, Digital Asset Research uh, last year to join Reserve as their full-time general counsel. Um, What really interests me about Reserve is there's two tokens in their protocol, a stablecoin and a secondary token. So after reviewing all the different ways that cryptocurrencies have been launched and the legal and regulatory risks, I was then able to apply my background and learnings to the launch of two new um, cryptocurrencies.
0: Yeah, cool. That is a that is a really um, really good background that you have. It's pretty cool. You know, I one thing that I love about this space, Bitcoin and and the space, is that it's multidisciplinary, right? So like, you have to really understand a bunch of different subjects at depth to really grasp how deep this goes. And so you, you know, obviously being an attorney gives you one side of it. Uh, spending time at digital assets research and really digging in gives you that technology side. And then having the even payment space like at Venmo. Uh, so, man, that's, a, that's an awesome background that you have that I'm sure helps you a lot with what you're doing. Now, you're now at this new um, stable coin reserve. Uh, and, and let's just talk about stable coins for a minute. So, uh, stable coins are something that's become very popular, like kind of like over the last year. A couple things. One, I mean, really, there's nothing stable, right? Everything's always moving. So, what's it stable against? That's, that's one thing. Um, so why don't you tell me about that? What What is it stable against? Is it stable against the dollar or what's it stable against? It's, ta- well,
1: yeah, this is a cop-out answer, but it's stable against something and every stable <laughs> coin is going to be different. Um, the more noteworthy ones, Tether, Gemini, uh, USDC, um, uh, all of the dollar backed fiat coins, it's stable relative to the price of the dollar subject to counterparty risk. And so, the, but when you think about it, the US dollar isn't stable. It is right. an inflationary currency. So we can't say that it's a stable generally, but um, it is stable relative to the price of the dollar, ideally. And right. then you could go to different uh, tr- trust tokens coming out with their, um, I think, their pound back stable coin. And so that will be stable versus the pound. But as we look at exchange rates between the pound and the dollar, those fluctuate. And so even those won't be stable against each other. So. Yeah. Uh, Stable really comes down to what are you trying to do? At least with reserve, we're focused a lot more on the developing countries, places where there are native cu- currencies going through hyperinflation. So our initial launch area, um, most likely next quarter, is going to be um, trying to give uh, Venezuelans an opportunity to put their money, in their boulevards, into something that is more stable than the bolivar. Initially, we'll be pegged to the US dollar. <laughs> Right. It's dealing with 10% daily inflation. Right. So as soon as people receive bolivars, they have to find a way to get out of bolivars. Otherwise tomorrow it will be 10% less, 10% less the day after, and that's compounding the wrong direction.
0: Right. So, um, you know, one thing is this, this thing is global. And a lot of people in the United States, we get kind of trapped with this, like thinking that everything's like the United States and the U S dollar is the reserve currency of the world. So it's, you know, we, dollar seems stable to us. But in other countries, they deal with this um, changing in value all the time, right? They're always uh, watching these uh, exchange rates and so forth. I I don't want to dive too far down this rabbit hole, but maybe just poke at it a little bit. But, you know, we talk about stable to what, right? Everything's moving. And it's interesting. I mean, if you really want to go into the history of money for 5,000 years, the world kind of was on the gold standard, really up until the early 1900s. And so, and really, Uh, I believe, and and history shows that for a few hundred years from like the 1400s to the 1700s, the world saw massive prosperity when the whole world was on this unified gold standard. And it's really interesting that we don't have a measurement of wealth today. So imagine if I needed to, I was building a house and like whatever the yard was changed, like the yard is this long today, but now the yard's this long tomorrow, right? Or like uh, the weight was this one day when the weight's this, like you need these standard units to measure things against. And I think that we don't, we don't, obviously we don't have that today. Everything is measured against each other, but not against a standard. Uh, What do you, what do you say about that?
1: Well, if you think about gold just generally, um, gold fluctuates in price. So even if it's going to be backing a currency like it was with the gold standard, at the price of gold, it's going to fluctuate. Well, what does it fluctuate
0: against? It fluctuates against a currency.
1: Well, and there's the open market for trading. Like if you trade gold as a commodity, like a lot of virtual cryptocurrencies are, 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 are going to be argued to be, um, that's just a volatile asset. <laughs> right.
0: Um, but if each currency was measured in gold for example so the us dollar is this many dollars to an ounce of gold the euro is this many euros to an ounce of gold the boulevards is this many boulevards to an ounce of gold at least everything was tied to one general measurement um, but and then we would have something to stable against compared against like so even if we had like a stable coin that was pegged to a basket of currencies um, at least we have something to compare what is stable. I don't know. It, it just seems, seems weird. Like how do you even back into that equation when you have nothing to measure stability against?
1: And I think that is an interesting perspective, uh, especially where we're, glo- the world is glo- um, going through globalization. Uh, everyone's becoming more tied together. There are more international transactions. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it doesn't need to be a stable coin. Maybe. Could be bitcoin it could be another virtual currency that doesn't currently exist um what i when i initially got interested in the industry people were talking about how it, you would travel around the world and not need to convert into the fiat currency of that local jurisdiction because there would just be a global universal payment mechanism that you could use at the right. time it was bitcoin because there were only maybe 100 cryptocurrencies at the time But now, um, there's no reason that it needs to be a stable coin. Of course, it could be a stable coin. But then again, if you're dealing with something on a global level, if you're stable against one currency, you're not stable to the rest of the world. Just hold hold the
0: currency, right? Like, why not just hold the currency? Right.
1: And then you could say or take what um, Libra is trying to do with a basket of different currencies. So you're stable relative to a basket of currencies. So I guess the question is more stable than um, not. I think it's um, definitely less volatile.
0: Yeah. I want to jump into Libra. We're going to table that for now, though. But uh, one thing, you know, I've studied money, and I've, I've, I've been a big believer in gold. I've invested in gold for a long time. And one thing that's interesting, if you look at um, prices throughout history and you compare them against a basket of assets, so what is this home in 1950, the medium home price, compared to how many barrels of oil would it take, how many ounces of gold would it take, how many right, how, how much copper would it take, and you can compare it to uh, assets. That's one thing. And I, and I haven't really seen any um, stable coins pegging to baskets of assets. Have you seen that?
1: Wow. I, I, and for your audience, I did not lay that up for you, but that's a beautiful softball throw to me. Um, that's actually what
0: we're trying to do. <laughs> I, yeah. I wasn't trying to do that. So I guess uh, tell us how you guys are different maybe. Yeah,
1: so um, this is more over the long term. And eventually, we want to have all of our assets on chain. Um, We want to put the assets um, collateralizing the outstanding stable coin into appreciating but safe assets. Think tokenized treasuries. Think tokenized uh, bonds, things that are relatively safe but are appreciating. And the idea is that if you get these assets all around the world, you could create a, a basket of assets that is stable just generally, not against any currency, not against anything else, just stable against the portfolio that's backing it. Of course, right. you then have to have a portfolio that is reasonably stable, which is difficult. And until we could prove that we could do it, it's all an idea. But um, that's what we're trying to do is create a portfolio of assets that back with stable coin that makes it where the stable coin long term isn't back to any currency of any jurisdiction.
0: Yeah, because I think, you know, I've I've come out and I've said many times, especially in response to this growing thing of modern monetary theory, MMT, where they want to just print more money. And I say that money is not wealth. Money measures wealth. Wealth is assets. And so right. it makes sense to peg it not against money because money is nothing. Money is a measurement to peg it, just peg it to the actual wealth, right? The actual assets. So that makes sense. Um, So why, uh, so, so these stable coins have really started to get popular. We've seen a bunch of them jumping up, a bunch of big companies, institutions, VCs, et cetera, jumping on board with the stable coins. Um, I want to know why people should care about stable coins. I want to know why companies want to develop stable coins and why do individual people care about stable coins? Sure. Um,
1: I think that, this sort of, the interest in stablecoins came out of the uh, bubble bursting at the end of 2017, early 18. Uh, a lot of people were still saying cryptocurrencies are going to solve remittances. They're going to be a store of value for people in countries that um, whose wealth is deteriorating because of the local financial system. But when Bitcoin loses, or cryptocurrency generally loses 80, 90 percent of its value during a bubble, well. Yeah. What you're trying to solve doesn't really solve it. So I think that's sort of where the idea of well, maybe stablecoins could be a lot more interesting. And also, as you have DApps, you're going to need a stable payment mechanism uh, within the DApp anyway. But um, I find that more of a long-term thing than a short-term thing. I think the developing countries is more um, an interesting short-term play.
0: So that's more um, then, of like the retail play, right? So like from a retail perspective as a user, like if I put all my money in Bitcoin or whatever coin, and it loses 80, 90%. Like that's horrible. I, I lose everything. So why don't I just put it into a stable coin that doesn't lose value? So that's kind of like an individual retail perspective. I guess then you have to tell me why it's better than whatever currency I'm holding. Like why not just keep it in the dollar then? Um, right. So then there's that.
1: Yeah, and it comes down to... um Remittances, sending money back home, like a PayPal, Western Union, they take 10 to 12% fees, large, largely because they solve the last mile problem. And whereas a cryptocurrency transaction will range probably from 0.001% to maybe a 0.1% or a 1%, depending on which cryptocurrency you're using. So all of a sudden, unlike if you're trying to use the existing financial system from the U.S. trying to send money to, let's just say Europe, even. It, you send a bank wire, it'll cost $30, $40, and it will take a day or two um, to actually get there. Whereas I could send that m- same amount of money more cheaply using a cryptocurrency, and if it's a large amount, maybe I want to make sure that it's stable in value so there isn't a volatility risk there. I'm able to move money around uh, much more easily. Um, but going back to your question about um, why would I want to use this or buy this? If you're a retail investor, unless you're sending remittances or dealing with international cross-border payments, Venmo's good enough, PayPal's good enough, Zelle is good enough, people in the US largely don't need this right now. And I believe that cryptocurrency stablecoins are gonna more largely take a place and grow outside of the US and more developed countries. Um, So that's who would use it, people who think that the cryptocurrency is better than their either fiat currency where they live, or they're dealing in a country like Cyprus, which took a certain percentage out of bank accounts several years ago. Right. And so that's why a retail person might use it. Right. Uh, why would an investor um, invest in a stable coin? Um, generally you don't invest in the stable coin. You're either investing in the company behind the stable coin, a profit sharing agreement, or there's a secondary token. And so when we're dealing with see, dollars in a bank account, the general business model is very similar to a PayPal where they're getting a yield on the app, the dollars in the bank account from whatever bank that they're storing it with and so as more money that you're holding more stable point outstanding the more interest revenue that you're collecting um, not Kind not like a
0: or like an insurance company right so they have that float they can invest the invest what they're holding
1: right and that's actually where it becomes interesting where the different types of financial
0: institutions that people could use whether
1: it's a trust company like a Gemini, whether it is an MSB like trust token, um, what you're allowed to do and what investments you're allowed to make are very different depending on the type of financial institution that you're regulated as. And so that's just something to consider. Um, what is the money that is back in a stable coin? Where is it? What is it being used for? And you just want to make sure that pe- people aren't just making large bets that um, you won't get any benefit at the end but right. then again, a stable coin is meant to not appreciate.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's not meant to appreciate. So from a from a u- retail user perspective, um, if that stable coin could hold value better than whatever fiat currency I have available to me, that's one option why I'd want to use it. Um, the other option would be, um, I mean, the other option as an investor it doesn't make sense because it's stable. It's not, I want to invest in something that's going to go up in value and a stable coin is not supposed to do that. Um, now, why do we see so, and I guess you answered. So, the reason why we see big companies, VCs, et cetera, starting stable coins, um, the play, the probably the predominant revenue play, would be to have those assets under management, which then they could invest in, and make more money on?
1: Yeah, that's one reason why people would be interested in it. Um, and at the end of the day, I think data is valuable. At the end, Bitcoin isn't anonymous, it's pseudo anonymous. If you run a node, like you would get access and you're able to um, parse the data and analyze that data properly you're able to learn a lot about a transaction and when i think about conglomerates creating their own cryptocurrency and running the validator nodes themselves even if they're not collecting personal data like directly by looking at your id or anything like that they're able to glean information about your spending habits and what you're using this for and I think that is, pro- like, I don't know if that's more valuable than the interest from the money backing it, but I do see that there's value in that as well.
0: Yeah. So that's what some of these stablecoin companies would be. They'd have a play possibly on the data as well as uh, whatever the float, they could do with the float. Yeah. Got it. Now, um, let's, so with stablecoins, um, predominantly they're all centrally controlled. You talked about the counterparty risk as well. Uh, they're centrally controlled, and they're trying to peg to something more uh, more stable, so whether that's a currency, a basket of assets, or whatever. Um, and I'm guessing there's all different types of ways that they can try to hold that peg. Um, but historically, doesn't it seem like all pegs have always broken? Even, even nation states haven't been able to hold their pegs?
1: Yeah, you have to get all stakeholders involved, interested in protecting the pegs. And that's sort of uh, I I could speak to Reserve because I know that much more intimately than I know the other stablecoin projects out there. But the way we approach this differently is we have a secondary token that incentivizes arbitragers to keep the peg on exchanges. You're always like you're never going to be able to keep the peg unless it's relatively constant on exchanges. But the question is how do you do that? You could perform your own market making function, but then you're never going to get to decentralize and there's going to be a lot of other issues of trying to keep a peg yourself. But if you trust that people are incentivized because they're going to profit by keeping the peg, all of a sudden, maybe that will, like, will that work? Um, We haven't seen it done yet, so I'd like to think it could work. Um, But I think you have to incentivize everyone in the ecosystem to keep the peg because it's in their best interest to do so. In a normal fiat coin backed stablecoin, why does a user, why does the the market make, the people that are buying it, just want to be able to arbitrage it on exchanges. Uh, that's where their profit is. They're not interested in making it stay a dollar because they don't make money off of that. They'd rather it be different.
0: Yeah, I mean, George Soros, uh, one of the most famous and prolific investors in the world. I mean, famous because of breaking the peg, right? So uh, he made a billion dollars in a day by breaking the the peg. And so uh, that's why it just seems like, man, if 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 nations can't even do keep the peg, um, how are these smaller institutions going to do that? So it's an interesting challenge that I guess we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Yeah, in
1: our white paper we discussed the Soros attack, and we think we've um, created mechanisms to prevent against a uh, run on the bank and a Soros attack, uh, largely by um, after a certain point. If we're saying that there are certain assets that appreciate, that means they're volatile; they could go down, maybe a treasury defaults in a foreign jurisdiction. For whatever reason, it could default, and maybe that starts triggering a sell-off. Our protocol has a mechanism in place where it basically prevents withdrawing after a certain point, uh just limited to a pro rata share of the basket. That way, the first co- people coming aren't going to take it out. They have to sort of trust that the peg will be restored to a dollar later on, but it prevents a run
0: on the bank and prevents a sort attack. Of yeah. Well, that's a really good uh, framework for, for the Stablecoin talk. Um, we'll get, let's, let's jump into some stuff that's maybe a little bit more in your wheelhouse, which is more on the regulation side of things. Um, obviously, you understand the technical side very well with your background, and so thanks for jumping into that with us. But on the regulation side, you talked about like working with Venmo and the problems they had even transferring money. Um, but now we're talking about Stablecoins and global regulation. So you even just said, right, like most stable coins maybe don't make sense in the US, but they make sense abroad. And then of course you start running into all different types of regulations and things like that. So what are some of the big, well, I'm guessing regulations is probably the biggest hurdle that stable coins will have to make uh, to reach adoption. But what specifically are you, you think will be the biggest problems there?
1: Well, the problem comes down to where are you located and who do you want your customers to be? If we're going to say that you're either located in the US or you want to have US com- uh, customers, your regulatory responsibilities are going to be very different. And it's going to be a lot more onerous doing it here versus elsewhere um, in the world. And that's just sort of, if you live in the US, this is what you've signed up for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was you, I didn't sign up for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so I have this conversation regularly with founders like, well, People are doing this elsewhere, um, and it's so much easier. They're, it's all much more complicated in the U.S. Like,
0: than leave. <laughs> you but, have, you but, you, but you said specifically stable coins really the target market is out of the U.S., right? Correct. So, So now you have to deal with each individual country has its own laws, and then I'm guessing because you're a U.S. company, you still have to re- somehow be with U.S. laws as well? I mean, what's that challenge like?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a very big challenge. Um, I will say that the US is largely more onerous in terms of your regulatory obligations and what you have to do. So there are a lot of jurisdictions actually where if you're compliant in the US, you'll be your compliance processes are going to be better than what they would require you elsewhere. And most regulators will allow you to do that if you are regulated in the US as a financial institution. Of course, you go into EU and some of like the more well uh, some of the bigger countries that's not necessarily the case. But if you come in being regulated by the U.S., like you, you're going to be more respected when you go to regulators elsewhere. But if you are regulated by the U.S., there is certain information that you need to collect. And so like one of the big issues is sort of the FinCEN and OFAC regime, which I sort of group into an umbrella called financial crimes. Um, this requires you to collect certain information about uh, the people you're doing business with but the information that you collect is going to be different depending on how risky this person is to your business model. And so you have to sort of make an assessment of what risk profile is every customer that comes in. You need to collect certain information, but you might need to collect even more information if your research shows that this is an extra risky person. And you also have to then monitor this person's account. Maybe they're sending very large transactions or they have a bunch of small transactions, then a large transaction. Now you have to analyze, well, what is this money being used for? Are we, uh, like, is this being used for illegal activity? We need to get more information from this person. And on the flip side, if you're purchasing the stable coin, you need to know where that money came from. And so if you're dealing with a, a developing country or a country outside the US, the question is how can you prove that the funds come from a legal source? Maybe you look at people's bank account records. Uh, maybe you have them sign an affidavit if it's small enough. They're just, it just sort of depends, and it's going to be very difficult because that's not really how you, uh, like, traditional technology scales. And that's not how many of the financial uh, industry works in these countries. If you go down to uh, Colombia, for example, or Venezuela, uh, Colombia, for example, um, there are a bunch of um, market makers that just don't do KYC. And uh, you can't plug into that ecosystem if you're a US financial institution. So you have to sort of go around the existing financial system and build it anew. And that's not easy.
0: Yeah, and then why would somebody want to comply with that when they have other options where they don't have to? um yes.
1: because uh if you want to work out of the well most countries in the world have aml kyc policies no but AML- i'm talking
0: about from a customer perspective like if i can deal with a market maker that doesn't require kyc why would i go with somebody who's gonna request my children's social security numbers and 10 years of bank statements or whatever right like why would i want to do that
1: yeah that's a very good question
0: it's too and, much fri- uh, it's too much friction you know um so uh, so each country is its own challenge so that 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 uh that can make it very difficult. I I you know looking at the the Facebook Libra coin which made a bunch of noise this past week it's technically a stable coin as well and it seemed like they didn't even plan to launch in the US really they wanted to launch I think in India which was their biggest market because of WhatsApp and like the right, and India is just like nope, you ain't launching here right is that kind of what happened <laughs>
1: yeah it, india's been on and off. Uh, Cryptocurrencies are illegal, not illegal, but um, they've been very skeptical and it's largely from a consumer protection angle. Although I do appreciate that they focused on one country because I think that's a much easier, more targeted way of going about building your business and use case than just going out globally saying, okay, here's a stable coin, everybody use it. You need to solve a real world problem for people. And in India, I this would have potentially solved the real world problem. The problem is you have, Facebook doesn't isn't looked fondly on by the regulators lately. Largely these were data privacy issues. Um, but now when you're talking about adding financial data and uh, control of people's money, all of a sudden people are gonna look at that even more strongly based on their response to data privacy before because there's nothing probably more important other than health information than financial information of in a person.
0: Yeah. So the, the regulations, they just continue to pile up. I know the G20 was just meeting and they were talking about this FTAF or whatever, right? The fat fat FATFA or whatever they call it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, they're wanting to impose more regulations and this travel rule and, and whatnot, which I don't want to really want to jump into too much, but I saw, uh, some comments, uh, today where they said, uh, <laughs> I think the secretary U uh, S treasury was saying, um, he said, uh, he said, uh, they want to make sure that virtual asset service providers do not operate in dark shadows, um, enable emerging fintech sector to stay one step ahead of rogue regimes and sympathizing, uh, sympathizers of illicit causes, searching for avenues to raise and transfer funds without detection. Um, and so they're like, we won't allow cryptocurrency to become the equivalent of secret numbered accounts, um, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, And so, I mean, they kind of get it and they want to stop this. I'm curious, you know, for me, i I seen, you know, specifically around the Facebook thing they're talking about, well, we always control the on-ramps and off-ramps. So it seems like they at least have that. Of course, they're going to always continue to um, regulate the exchanges as best they can, specifically the ones that have on-ramps and off-ramps. For those that are listening, on-ramps and off-ramps, meaning the chance to go from crypto back to fiat. So whether I turn fiat to crypto or crypto back to fiat, that's an on-ramp and an off-ramp. So they always regulate that. But let's go back into um, the money remittance market. So uh, the big use case is money remittance. If I want to, and, and I've done this because I have people all over the world that work for me, and I try to send money Western Union and I got to drive down to the location. It takes me an hour while I'm there. It has to be done in cash. It takes 30 to 45 minutes to do it. It's super expensive, et cetera, right? And, and, it, and it's really expensive. So if I could just send them crypto, then that, that cuts all that out. It's way cheaper, um, et cetera. Now, these, as I just mentioned, this FATFA, these regulatory people trying to manage the on-ramps, off-ramps, et cetera, but where does remittance fall into this? So like if I can just, if, if somebody in uh, Colombia or India can just download an app and I can just transfer them coins, like what what can a regulator really do about that?
1: Um, there isn't much that a regulator could do about it. Is, um, this a,
0: is, this a, is this, do you see this as a war they're going to eventually lose? That's an
1: interesting question. Um, yes, but over a much longer horizon than anyone expects. Um, I haven't used um, sort of the, financial crimes aspect looking at this but i look at it from the sec perspective of the example of decentralized exchanges decentralized exchanges as they currently exist are not really decentralized exchanges yes they're no they're not taking custody of funds so that's an argument but you know who's building you largely know who's building it you know who's behind the project you know who put it out there you know who's responsible for upkeep who to go with problems that's not decentralized and that's running an exchange but what were to happen if there was a truly decentralized exchange, no one knew who was behind the project, and uh, people were just able to, with smart contracts, post bid and ask prices that were executed <laughs> automatically. Which and,
0: I believe will, which I believe there will be. There's, there's I, a need for it, so someone's going to build it.
1: Yeah, and I think this is probably a 10 to 15-year horizon. Um, some people might do it quicker. You might think way it's so, uh, way, so, way,
0: way, way sooner, hopefully, but anyway, go ahead. Right.
1: But yeah, the question is, there's no one to go after <laughs> at the end of the day. You can't turn off, the, like there's no servers to turn off because they're it's around the world. And so what happens when a regulator can't regulate the thing that it wants to regulate? It?
0: So they um, control the on-ramp, off-ramp, but if I never need to get on or off, what are they going to do? Right. And what
1: happens when you could then spend that in the real world? Right. At, like the market. That's a real question. The thing is, we're not at that point yet. We're currently dealing with uh, ICOs, uh, quadriaga um, exchange um, runaways. Um, We're dealing with much larger fraud and other things right now, where I just don't think that's really on the regulator's mind. There's just so much low hanging fruit right now with bad actors that that's who regulators will go after first. That's not to say that they won't go after others later. But what you yeah, said, um,
0: yeah. I was curious. Someone coming from Venmo and then working on stablecoin, and then the remittance market is the big piece there, <laughs> and the regulators are trying their best to stop that from happening. But if you really open up the remittance market, which is the big use case, then it almost has to get rid of this regulation. It's like You can't really open up the remittance market, I think, without that, it seems like. I mean, because as you're saying, right, to get all these individual countries with all their individual laws to all work together, like it's almost like it probably would never happen. And so you almost have to move outside of that, I would think. I
1: think a company like a PayPal, um, if you, are not saying that the PayPal would do this, I'm saying that a company that starts from nothing and takes the PayPal model of, okay, we need to go in, to figure out how to send money to each of these com- uh, com- uh, countries and to go through the process in each of those countries. It's tedious, time consuming, expensive, and it's unclear whether it will even work because now we're dealing with cryptocurrency as opposed to, I don't know, digital money, a financial institution. So that might be an even harder sell. Um, or maybe, let's say that there and are... Still pay, and
0: still PayPal is not available in a lot of places, which is why the money remittance is still trillions of dollars, which is why I still have to Western Union because I can't PayPal to those locations.
1: Yeah. And there's been a big pain point. that If you're going to send remittances, you have, like you said, you need to use cash. The question is, at some point, cash has to enter the system. Yeah. And so, so at that and point, and would, the idea would, is that you don't have to prevent money laundering. The idea is that if money laundering is found, you have enough information to have it go back to the regulators that are enforcing um, whatever law they're up in. So for example, if I submit money to you and you've never like, been KYC'd, but you send that money off to someone else, I was KYC'd when I put the money in the bank account.
0: And they're gonna,
1: the, let's say uh, FinCEN comes or the Department of Justice comes and says, here's a subpoena, I need the records of Mark um, give me his records. Um, like, um, or, or we need to know who this went to. I'm like, well, I know I sent it to you. Here's all the information I know about Mark. And you could have sent that off to someone else, but then they're just going to go to you. And yeah, you could say, I'm not going to help you, but then they're going to, I leave. don't know. Or whatever.
0: <laughs> right. You know, think- um, about cash. Right. I mean, none of this was even around 50 years ago. The whole world was cash. I mean, when they when they raided Iraq, Saddam Hussein had pallets and pallets and pallets of cash. I mean, even just a few years ago, the Obama administration sent planes of pallets of cash to Iran. Pallets of cash he sent in the middle of the night to Iran, right? Um, and so, like, all this, like, financial regulation as to, like, we need to know where every single penny is going and who's who. It's all this is all brand new, isn't it?
1: Um, yeah, well, if you want to even go back to like 2007, 2008, in the financial crisis, I forgot which bank was getting a bailout. I don't want to say the wrong name, but um, they needed an infusion of like a billion or two billion dollars, um, and this was before Monday. The bell opened on Monday, but banks are closed after 5 p.m. on a Friday, and so there was no way to wire this money. So someone had to fly on a plane with a multi-billion-dollar check uh, to New York from Japan to be able to get the money there in time. And yeah, this could have, we didn't have this solution before, but you're saying going back even further, it was all cash. Yeah, and that's our legacy financial system. Is so something that so
0: was- this, this gets into philosophy, uh, which like, again, we always have to dip into this, but like, all oh, this regulation, like it, it's, it's all new. Like, is it really even that important? And the world hasn't always operated like this. And so if it hasn't done, if it hasn't been like this for very long, if we operated fine without it, do we need it? And couldn't we just move to a crypto-only remittance market where we don't have it anymore? I mean, is the world going to end? Uh, no, it's the crypto utopia.
1: But um, we're not starting with a blank slate. We're starting with many uh, existing financial regulations. Um, most recently got more onerous, after in the financial collapse because um, the free market was greedy and we decided to bail out um, a lot of these companies. Um, yeah. Some people, and that was the crypto ethos, would say, well, they should have all failed and it's a survival of fittest, like free market. Yep. Um, that's not what the U.S. government does. That's and, not what happened. I mean, and that's not what happened. And that's <laughs> the U.S. government is responsible for protecting its citizens. And it decided that this is the right thing for us to do, whether you agree with it or not. Like, that's irrelevant. What's relevant is there are enough people in Washington, D.C. that agreed that this was the appropriate response to take. And then they took it. And that's what we deal with by being in the United States.
0: Yeah, cool. Well, um, this is such a fascinating topic, uh, one that I'm, I'm uh, really intrigued in, and we could sit here and go on forever and ever, but uh, I know we need to wrap this up. So let me just ask you one last thing. So I'm just curious, kind of in your position, you have this unique perspective on, on payments and stable coins and where you're at. What are you seeing right now in the space that has you excited uh, maybe, for the near term six months or twelve months out,
1: I'm really excited that um people are more focused on cryptocurrencies that have been out for a while. There's less scams out there. Mm-hmm. Um, people are not ra- are raising less money um, The ones that are raising money are raising five, ten, fifteen million dollars, not the hundred million dollars that the yeah. billions of dollars that others have raised to build a technology um So I'm excited about that for a bunch of reasons. I'm excited for the Kin uh, lawsuit because the Kin FEC battle, because I'm really excited to see what we're going to get from that court case. Yeah. Um, I don't think Kin has great facts to support the Howey test, but their argument that the Howey test shouldn't apply is a novel and interesting argument that I'm curious to see if that will hold any muster um, under the, uh, in the courts.
0: Do you think we'll see that play out over the next 12 months? Um,
1: some of it, but we won't have an answer in 12 months, but there will be filings. I assume Ken will file for a motion to dismiss at some point because that's usually what you will do. The SEC will respond to that. The court will likely say, okay, there's enough to go to trial over. And I expect there to be a lot of legal, ba- like not I only call them battles, but legal back and forth to position each side. Um, and I think we're going to learn more information about what's going on there from that, but no, I don't think that this is going to settle. I don't think it's going to end in the next year, year and a half.
0: And then we didn't talk about Facebook Libra really. Um, and, and we don't have any time left to dig into it, but I guess (laughs) that's something that's going to happen over the next six months or 12 months. Um, let me get your, uh, opinion. They have been asked by us Maxine Waters leading the charge to stop, to halt until this is get figured out. Uh, do they halt or do they continue? And uh, what does the next six months look like for that? The question
1: is, uh, telling them the halt is vague. Um, I'm not sure, I didn't read what the exact response was, but Facebook itself isn't in control of uh, the Libra Foundation. It's one of the founding members, I think either they or Calibra runs a uh, node for validation. But Facebook itself doesn't, control it really and if they wanted to like show a more decentralized thing i think they should have taken a further step back so that they wouldn't get so much regulatory pushback but hindsight is 2020 and you obviously want the marketing push of being associated with that i think what i'd be more worried about is you had already been approached by several regulators who were talking about facebook breaking up big tech companies and regardless of how you feel about that when you add financial to something when you're already being talked about as being too big and controlling too much of people's lives. Well, but now really that I mean, too big. <laughs> yeah, so it was just a very poor timing. And so ultimately, I don't think Facebook has any legal obligation currently to stop doing it. It's whether or not they are worried enough that Congress might take some action that they don't like whereas it would make sense to stop. And I just don't have access to their internal conversations or their risk profile or enough information to guess whether they will
0: push back or not. So as a, as a hypothetical general counsel, do you tell them, hey, let's hold off and uh, see what happens first or like, uh, let's just go for it? I don't launch in the US. Don't launch in the US, got it.
1: right. I need more information to decide if you completely stop or not. But at the very least, you're not dealing with U.S. customers until this is handled.
0: Got it. Got it. Great. All right. Well, thanks okay. for sticking your neck out on that one. I know that's, uh, that's always a tough one. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, anyway, anyway, Matt, I know we went a little bit long. Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. I uh, love talking about this kind of stuff. And hopefully everyone enjoyed listening. Now you have some really good perspectives. Where, where would anyone keep up with you if they wanted?
1: Um, you can follow me on Twitter at M.A. Gertler, or on LinkedIn, you could add me, uh, just Matthew Gertler.
0: Great. All right. Well, good stuff. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to talk today. It's been my pleasure. Have a great day. Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.